Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. You know, there's a lot of times in life where we just don't really know what to do. Let's talk about that. I'm not very good at counseling. I, uh, I want to be. I, you know, in fact, in college, I decided I wanted to major in counseling. And so I, I decided to switch majors, met with the, the dean of counseling in my school, got accepted into the counseling program. I struggled so much. Just about every lecture, one of my professors cried at some point, like lots of crying going on all the time. And I get very awkward around crying, more awkward than my normal awkward. I was just, there's so much crying. I don't know if these people like went into counseling because they needed counseling or what, but I don't, I don't, I don't understand all the crying. But anyways, a few months into, into the program, the dean had called me in. Um, so I dropped in and, and he said, you know, Junior, this isn't for you. Imagine that, you know, getting kicked out of the counseling program, not for bad grades, it's just, just really bad at it. And, and they said, he said uh, Junior, you, you just, you try to fix everybody's problems right away. And I was like, that's a bad thing? You know, like, no wonder you're all are crying, you're not fixing any problems. So I got kicked out of the program. And, uh, and, and now today, like no joke, when somebody calls the office for counseling, I'm literally the last person to get the call. I don't know how this happened. I, we, like, we never had a conversation, at least I never had a conversation with any staff about this. Someone must have told the receptionist, the person who answers the phone calls, you know, if, if anyone calls for counseling, do not send them to Junior's phone. The only time I, I take the calls if every single staff member is gone. And literally had this happen a couple weeks ago. A woman calls the office of like, with an issue. Nobody's in the office. The person who answers the phone call checked every single office, then came into mine, and, and I quote, said this, uh, you're the only one left. Even the interns are gone. So I guess you're going to do some counseling. I pick up the phone. The person on the phone described the issue that they were having with their family. It's another reason I'd be a bad counselor, like break all the confidentiality. Uh, no, I won't go into detail, but... This woman on the phone had a, had a real problem. Something was going on in the, the family. There's some family drama, which is you know very common, and an issue that it clearly needed addressing. Um, something definitely needed to be brought out into the light. But if she brought it out into the light, it, it would it would tear apart the family. It really would. And so she explained the issue to me, and she said, you know, what should I do? I was like, oh dang it, you got the wrong guy. But that's when I remembered a question. It's a question I ask myself every time I don't know what to do, which is a lot. Times where I think, you know, do I say something here or, or not? Should I confront that and start some conflict or is it really not that big of a deal? Should I take this opportunity or should I stick with where I'm at? One of the best questions to ask when you don't know what to do. I'm not going to tell you yet, though. I want to show it to you. Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to be. Genesis 37. Really, here's your grab a Bible. It's page 31 in the Bibles in the chairs. We're going to start in verse, verse 12. Uh, we got um, Bibles in the chairs, and then also on our, our bridge app, we have the Bible on there. And we also have some, some notes to, uh, to tackle today. This summer, we're slowly tracing the life of a, of a man named Joseph. And we started out first by looking at the home that Joseph was raised in. If you really want to know someone, you go to their hometown and, and you learn how they grew up. And so we did, that with, we did that with Joseph. And we found the dysfunctional, unhealthy family that Joseph was raised in. Joseph was raised under terrible leadership, under a, an extremely passive father that just ruined the whole family by sweeping everything under the rug constantly. And so Joseph had a lot of obstacles to overcome as a kid. Last week, we looked at his dreams, uh, dreams that started 
causing some more issues with, within the already dysfunctional family. This week, third week, it all comes to head. Let me pray, and we'll jump into the text. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is, it is so relevant. Uh, these words are thousands of years old, and yet uh, they hit us today. They guide our steps this week with our family, things that we have going on, with our career things that we have going on, relationships. God, your word is directing us. We, we want that. But God, first and foremost, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text to us. Uh, may we not um, suppress your spirit, but may we be open to whatever you have for us today. Uh, do a surgery if you, if you must. Uh, we want conviction through your word. And so we ask that you speak to us. We want to grow closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into Genesis 37, immediately the arid air hits our face. The dry ground crunches underneath our feet as we walk through Hebron. And not a drop of moisture in sight. See, it's summer. The season of brown, the grass is withered. Anything green is very precious and fed to cattle. In fact, the shepherds in this area, they rotate their flocks to find patches of greenery to feed their cattle. Up on the hill sits a house, drying laundry in the, in the front yard, flaps in the wind. It's a bit hazy in the heat, but you can see a colorful blur underneath one of the trees. As we get closer, it's a 17-year-old kid that sits with his back against the tree, just throwing rocks at a larger rocks to, to pass the time. This is his home. But little does he know, this is the last day that he'll spend here. For the coming years, it's this scene, it's this house, it's underneath this tree, it's this feeling right now that Joseph will mentally retreat back to to remember home as a boy. It's the last day before he would be trafficked. And so we jump into verse 12. It says, Now his brothers, Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now Genesis is giving us this context. Uh, Genesis gives us places and maps for a reason. It's painting a picture, and so I don't want us to miss this. Joseph and his dad currently right now are in Hebron, an area just south of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where um, Joseph's, Joseph's mom was buried. Verse 12 says the brothers are up in Shechem. Now, this is an interesting detail because if you are with us, especially in week one, you might remember the story of Joseph's sister being raped. Joseph's sister is raped. Dad, classic passive dad, doesn't do anything about it. So the brothers, they, they take matters into their own hands. They go to the village and they, they slaughter a village. That happened in Shechem. So right off the bat, there's this potential threat that's playing out here. The brothers return from Hebron. They're looking for greenery to feed their cattle. They return up to, up to Shechem to, to feed their cattle. Shechem is populated with people who have murdered loved ones, and the murderers are just outside of town looking to feed their sheep. This is a perfect moment for retaliation. And so verse 12, Jacob is concerned about what could happen here. They're back up in Shechem. So he finds Joseph, and in verses 13 and 14, he sent, Jacob sends the little brother to go find his brothers at Shechem. Just go check in, make sure they're okay. Middle of verse 14. So he meaning Joseph, went from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem and found a man, a man found him wandering, this is verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields. Now this, you gotta think about this, this is not an easy job. This isn't like, you know, when you're a kid and mom asks you to go outside and find your siblings out in the yard. This is like 
Bear Grylls style survival. This is Joseph heading out miles out into the arid wilderness, do some tracking, find your brothers who, by the way, they hate you. So why don't you go out there, track your brothers down who, and what a great assignment. I think I would have said no. But Joseph obeys, heads to Shechem, he's wandering the fields, uh, middle of verse 15. And the man asked him, uh, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. Verse 17. And the man said, well, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, how'd this guy know about the brothers? You ever wonder about that? How'd this guy who's wandering the field know about these brothers? Because these brothers are the, fam- you know, the infamous vigilantes. This, this guy knew about the brothers because when they left, he went home to celebrate with his family. Hey, hooray, those brothers, those murders, that murderous band is gone. Now, Joseph comes a couple days later looking for him. He tells Joseph, though they're in Dothan. Dothan is 13 miles north of, of Shechem. Now, this sucks. I hate it when after church, this happens all the time. I grew up, I grew up uh, after church, I'd always wait for my mom. You know, like to leave church. It's like, come on, mom, I want to go home. And then I got married. Little did I realize we're doing the same exact thing. Like my wife's a talker. So after church, she's like waiting on my wife. I hate it when, when I'm waiting after church for my wife and I can't find her. And they're like, oh, Junior, she's like talking. She's chatting it up with all the bridge kids workers. It's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So now I got to go search the building to go find my wife. I think that's annoying. Imagine being Joseph here. Like, oh, you have to go walk a half marathon up north And why don't you go check there? They might not even be there, but why don't you go walk 13 miles to see if they're there? Verse 18. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Uh, Verse uh, continues on. Uh, When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. How'd they recognize him at a distance? That flashy peacock coat is now betraying him. And now it's 11 on 1. If there's anyone ever who's going to get a beating, if there's anyone ever who's going to get jumped, is Joseph here. 11 older murderous guys who hate their 17-year-old little brother punk. It's 11 on one. Now the word kill here, uh, we see that exact same word used uh, 34 chapters earlier um, when another brother was killed by his brother. You know what brothers we're talking about? Cain and Abel. Cain is envious of Abel and Abel dies. This is a repeated theme. You have brothers throughout Genesis colliding. You have Cain and Abel colliding. You have Jacob and Esau colliding. And now you have Joseph and his brothers colliding here. Here's the thing. It's like this world is an awful place. The safest place for your family should be in your home. Your family should be this this haven of safety and, and sense in a messed up world. Joseph does not experience that. Sin easily destroys that. Verse 19, we continue on. It says, uh, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him in one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. He's got his dreams. We got a dream too. And our dream is that he lives in a hole and dies. Let's end the dreamer's dream and let's make our dreams all come true. Verse 21 But when Reuben heard it, now Reuben, if you remember from week one, Reuben is the oldest. He's the one who slept with his stepmom. So this guy's just jacked up. But all of a sudden, he's got like some bit of like con, you know, conscience here. Even good, even bad people have good days. But when Reuben heard it, we're in verse 21, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
His plan was, as you can see his plan at the end of verse 22, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben says, all right, come on, guys. Let's just like rough him up, throw him in the pit, spook him, scare him, teach him a lesson, but don't like actually do anything. It kind of reminds me of when, I'm pretty sure I scarred my youngest. And uh, it's 2022, so maybe I shouldn't share these stories. But my youngest, Reese, um, she was too. And she was becoming this very defiant two-year-old. And she got it from her mom. Spunky defiance. That actually comes from me. But two is, you know, two, for those of you who are parents or <laughs> good parents, you know that like two is like the time when you need to let them know they will not win. And so we're up at camp. And I told my youngest, I said, hey, uh, Reese, get in the truck. We're, we're going to go have dinner. And she sat down on the ground and said, no. I said, okay, you don't say no to me. So I spank her. I was like, I'm getting the car. And she goes, no. I was like, all right, what? She can't win, so I have two options. I can pick her up, put her in the truck, or I could just leave. And I decided to just leave. I told Nicole, get in the car. And Nicole's like, uh, what? Without our youngest? It's like, well, we're not going to actually leave. Just, you know, she doesn't need to know that, though. And so we all got in the car, and we drove off a bit. <laughs> One of my favorite memories is, like, my youngest running over a hill, just screaming, crying, chasing us. Scared her good. Never had that issue again, ever. Like, we won. <laughs> Though now when I tell the girls, like, on the way to church tonight, I was like, hey, get in the truck. Like, my youngest just sprints, going, don't leave without me. It's three years ago, I'm pretty sure I scarred her. Um, but this is, this is kind of what's playing out here. This is Reuben's plan, right? He's like, all right, let's, just, let, let's not actually do anything, guys. Let's just scare him good. Let's teach him a lesson. Let, let's show him that we're older, we're stronger, we're not to be messed with. Let's just beat the little brother up, not actually kill him. Uh, we get to verse 23. Which, by the way, some of you were that evil, malicious older sibling, weren't you? Always pounding on your younger siblings. Yeah. Some of you were the victim, weren't you? I can see it because you're like twitching right now. <laughs> you're just thinking about it. We'll keep moving. 23. Verse 23. It says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. I just want to pause here for a second. Um, we mentioned this before, but in the, in the story of Joseph or in the narrative of Joseph, in the life of Joseph, there are many of events in Joseph's life that actually point to Jesus. And it's actually a really fun study to read through uh, with that lens of like, what actually points to Jesus as we read through Joseph's story? This is one of those times. Joseph is stripped of his robe. The language here that's used is very, very similar to um, Jesus before the cross. Jesus is stripped of his tunic. But more than that, Jesus is stripped of his flesh. His flesh is stripped off. And we'll see in the coming weeks, but, but Je uh, Joseph overcomes temptation, like Jesus overcame temptation. Uh, Joseph goes to Egypt. Jesus went to Egypt. Joseph is sold for silver. We'll see in a second. Jesus is sold for silver. Joseph is falsely accused, like Jesus. He's unjustly imprisoned, like Jesus. Rises from the pit to rule, like Jesus. Extends forgiveness, like Jesus. Well, we're not saying that Joseph is Jesus, but there's these beautiful little threads in the life of Joseph that point to, that point to uh, Jesus Christ. And verse 23 is, is one of those threads. But how good it must have felt for those brothers to grab a hold of that coat. How good it must have felt to tear it off him. To have, to have seen and hated that coat for so long because it stood as a symbol of dad's favorites. To have it in their hands now had to feel so good. How terrorizing it must have felt for Joseph. It wasn't far from here. These brothers killed scores of men in the town. These brothers know how to kill and get away with it. This is dramatizing for the 17-year-old kid. Verse 24. 
They took him, they threw him in a pit. The pit was empty and there was, there was no water in it. So it's the perfect spot to stick their brother until they can figure out really what to do. Are we going to, you know, kill him or just leave him in there? Verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. No conscience. You think about that. They just beat their brother up. I mean, picture this scene. He's lying in a dried up well, unclothed, bruised, probably bleeding, completely terrified. His cries echo off the dirt walls. Yet there they sit. Anyone want a sandwich? These are these kind of brothers. And later on, we'll, we'll see the tables turned. It'll be Joseph with all the food one day and the brothers without. But this doesn't happen for quite a while. They sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Now, this is an interesting, interesting moment. Uh, Ishmaelites are related to these brothers. It's one of the stories that the family doesn't like talking about because the Ishmaelites, um, they come from great-grandpa's fling. Great-grandpa didn't obey God. He slept with an Egyptian slave. He got her pregnant. Then he kicked her out. No child support. It was just like this, this really dark history in their family. And so as they're, they're eating, they see great grandpa's ex-girlfriend's family. Side of the family we don't really talk to, you know, we don't invite them over for Christmas. We don't send them Christmas cards. You know, it's just, that's, that, that family, it's an awkward conversation. And so they see them walking by. And the rest of the verse there in verse 25 says they're coming from Gilead to Egypt. It's a very common slave trade route during this time, which sparks an idea. This is when Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? You know, guys, I've been sitting here thinking as we've been munching on our lunch, if we kill the little twerp, we don't get anything. So why don't, why don't we just sell him? Verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Let's not kill him. And all this mercy rises up in him. Let's just sell him. After all, he is their own brother. I mean, they're saints. Verse 28. Then Midian, Midianite, or the Ishmaelite traders, passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. Verse 28. So they lift him out of the pit. This is, okay, this is so hard to really put ourselves into this story, but, but I really want us to just try at this moment, because this is an important moment in the life of Joseph. This is something that he'll remember the rest of his life. I want you to just picture this scene. Joseph is sitting there in the well with his, his bare back against the dry dirt. He's on alert right now. He's kind of worried about what other animals have crawled in here or slithered in here looking for water or looking for shade. There's commotion above him and talking above him, but it's really hard to make out what's going on or what's being said. You know, what are they talking about? Are they going to find a rock? You know, this is how many people are killed in pits like this with large rocks raining down from above. Like, is this, is this how I go? Out of nowhere, a rope slaps the dirt wall. His heart leaps, a bit of compassion from his brothers, maybe. Maybe they'll let him run off in his undergarments. It'll be embarrassing, but at least he'll have his life. As he reaches the top, his eyes have yet to adjust to the daylight. Shadowy figures stand around him, talking with accents. Is this a rescue from somebody else? Where are my brothers? That's when his eyes adjust, and he sees a stranger paying one of his brothers. It says, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That's very interesting. Uh, during this time in this region, many commentators believe that 20, sec 20 shekels of silver was the price of a slave with a disability. So the hatred... And the envy in Joseph's brothers was so thick, they couldn't even sell him well. They couldn't upsell him to get a, a better profit. Joseph, 
the man who will save Egypt. Joseph, the man who will grow Egypt's economy. Joseph, the man who overcame the cowardly, uh, passive leadership of his dad to rule a nation and make it into an economic powerhouse. The man who gained so much land for Egypt is bought for 20 shekels of silver. Well, from Dothan, the, the trade route has two ways of, from, to Egypt. Here we are up in Dothan. They need to go down into, down into Egypt. One of the trade routes is through Hebron, where Joseph is from. It's unlikely they would have taken this route because, again, this is where Joseph's dad is. Joseph's cries would have somehow reached his father's ears, so it's likely they didn't take this route. Um, the other route, the more likely route, is along the Mediterranean coast line. And so there's Joseph, the Mediterranean Sea to his right, Home is fading in the distance behind him to his left. The salty sea breeze sweeps over, cooling the caravan in the Middle Eastern heat, yet it's just unenjoyable as he walks chained to a cart with the intimidating power of, of Egypt growing on the horizon. Today, Joseph trades promised land for pagan Egypt sand. And little does anyone know this scared, scrawny kid being led to Egypt's selling block this scared little kid who was just beat up and sold by his brothers, a scared little kid from a dysfunctional home, little does anyone know how much the favor of God rests upon this kid. With every odd against him, this scared little kid will one day bust through Egypt's streets and Pharaoh's own chariots with Pharaoh's ring. But that will come later, to be continued a few lessons we get from this text. Number one, obedience can lead to difficulty. Obedience can lead to difficulty. Now you think about this. Where, where did this all start? It started back in verse 13. Dad sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. You know, Joseph, why don't you, why don't you go into an, a dangerous area and check in on a bunch of men who completely hate you? Just, none of us would have wanted to have done that. But Joseph's obedience, Joseph obeys, and his obedience led to great difficulty. You think about it. This is the, this is the story of Jesus, isn't it? The father sends the son to a dangerous, corrupt area, the world, to people who hate him. And Jesus' obedience leads to difficulty. This is the reality of people who follow Jesus Christ. Obedience often leads to difficulty. If you're really going to obey God, there's going to be difficulty in your life. If you're really going to obey God with your business, there's going to be difficulty in business. There's going to be tension from doing the right thing. If you're really going to follow what God has for you in your family, pursuing family dynamics God's way and seeking holiness, ultimately it's the healthiest thing, but it will be extremely difficult. If you're going to date in obedience with God, it's going to be difficult. Saving sex for marriage, it's going to be difficult. If you're going to operate your finances in obedience to God, tithing and saving, not spending on whatever you feel, it's going to be best in the long run, but it's going to be difficult. I'd even put it stronger than this. Obedience invites difficulty. This is just often lead to, obedience invites it. We live in a world where if you're going to do the right thing, you're going to pay for it. Your holiness, which is you're set apart, got to set you apart. Your holiness was brought to you by Jesus, but to walk in it, you're going to pay for it too. This is one of the many reasons that I'm not a prosperity gospel proponent. Prosperity gospel is a big teaching today. It's, it's, it's huge. 
um, today in our world. It's a teaching that, you know, if you follow God, God's going to give you success and, and riches and health. And it's just not true for most people. It's just not true. If you're going to do the right thing, you're going to suffer. You look at our family history, the early church, Jesus' disciples, the prophets before them, Jesus himself. God didn't give them earthly success, riches, or health. Their obedience brought difficulty. And the same should be true with, with you. When we find ourselves in, in an easy life, when everything's easy and going, it's not wrong, but it's a healthy thing to just check ourselves. Am I really doing what's right here? Am I really doing what's, what's hard here, what God has asked me to do here? Am I living in obedience? Because obedience, especially in this day and age, yeah, it's going to cost you. You're going to lose sales. You're going to get into conflict. You're going to lose clients. You're going to lose friendships. You're going to lose dates. You're going to lose pleasure. Obedience leads to difficulty, but it is worth it. That's why I love Psalm 73 so much. Psalm 73 is one of the most raw chapters in scripture. And I was reading it a couple weeks ago. It was actually in our bridge reading program. And I've been oddly emotional lately, probably because my grandma passed and uh, just a bit busy right now. And so I was reading Psalm 73 and just found myself crying. I was like, am I just emotional? Or well, like, this is weird because I never really cry. You know, it's almost like I need counseling right now or something. Um, <laughs> it's like, no, it's just, it's Psalm 73 is so, so beautiful the author basically goes to God and points at all the wicked around him. And I felt this. You felt this too. You ever feel that? Everybody's getting head around me. Like they don't do things God's way. And look at them. They're totally like cheating and lying and they're getting ahead of me. And that's what the author of Psalm 73 does. He's like, God, look at the wicked, the proud, the, the arrogant. They're wealthy. They're healthy. They live in pleasure. They don't taste my daily difficulty. Why are you letting this happen? The, the wicked are better off than me. And at the end of the psalm, it'll bring tears to your eyes. The psalmist writes, but as for me, how good it is to be near God. In the most beautiful words, he writes, earth has nothing I desire but you. They all get the earth, but I get you. They may have earthly present pleasures, but I, I get you. Our obedience is going to bring difficulty at times, it's going to set you back. That's okay. At times, it may even put you on your back. But take heart. It is so worth it. Because it brings us closer to the one we desire. Our obedience brings us near God. It's difficult. It's a difficult path. But it is so worth it. Obedience invites difficulty. Point number two. Don't worry. The outline gets better. Point number two. You're going to be hated. This is why I couldn't. I got kicked out of the counseling program. He's like, if you're going to obey, life will be hard, and you're going to be hated. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, Joseph didn't deserve to be hated. Yeah, okay. He was favored by his dad, but like that's his dad's fault. It's not Joseph's fault. In this life, you're going to be hated. And it's really hard for some of us you know, who, who struggle with like people pleasing is just like our operating system. And we want to be liked by everybody, but it's just reality. Like Jesus himself said, blessed are you when not if Jesus said, blessed are you when people hate you because you do what I ask you to do. And I bet many of us can attest to that reality. 
I bet some, in some of your stories, you know, before you followed Jesus, you, you ran with a certain crowd or you just, you did certain things, but, but then you met Jesus and, and things began to change and you started to step up to what Jesus had for you. And now the crowd doesn't like this new you. They actually hate it. They actually hate you. They don't, they don't do, you know, you don't do those certain things you used to do with them before. And they hate that. They hate you. But if you walk in obedience, you're going to invite difficulty and you're going to be hated. It's just reality. But rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. You're in good company. You're going to be hated, though. Here's where it gets better, though. God draws near in times of pain. You obey, it's going to get hard. People are going to hate you. But this is when God draws near. That arid day of sunburnt Joseph entering the intimidating architecture of Egypt all around him, knowing this was probably his new home. He didn't speak the language. He didn't know the culture. He had no idea where he was going to lay his head that night or where his next meal was coming from. His face is still crusted with, from tears from leaving his dad and his little brother behind. Yet God was more near than ever before. I love that Genesis writes, but the favor of the Lord was upon Joseph and God is with you. Psalm 34 says, God is near to the brokenhearted. God is near to the brokenhearted. And maybe that's how you walked in today. He's broken. You're hurting. And you're done trying to buck up and figure this out on your own, power through. You've surrendered that attitude and you're just broken. You know what it's like. God is near to you. God draws near. It's in our brokenness. When we surrender, he meets us right there. And we'll see this play out in Joseph's coming days, but God is about to draw near to pagan Egypt through this broken, sunburnt, terrified kid. God is near. God is with you. And it's this idea, it's this idea right here. It's this thought that is so powerful as it directs our lives in times of pain. So, you know, the question I brought up earlier of, you know, okay, I'm in counseling and I like, I, you know, I have no idea what to do in counseling, but this is kind of my go-to question. It's the question I ask myself anytime I, I don't know what to do. I believe it's this question that, that Joseph held on to at this point. Here's the question, the question to ask yourself, not quite sure what to do in this moment. Is this right here? What would you do if you knew God would be with you? What would you do if you knew God would be with you? Joseph knew God was going to be with him. What would you do differently in your family? What would you do differently with your relationships, with dating, with your business, if you knew God would be with you? It's so simple, but it's so powerful. What would I do if I knew God would be with me? Suddenly the answer becomes very clear. Well, I do the hard thing. I do the right thing. And I trust that God's going to meet me in that. It, it brings so many life difficulties into instant focus. Yeah, I don't know if I should get serious with this person. You know, I don't really love God. Well, what would you do if you knew that God would be with you? I'd break up. They don't want God. And so I'd do the hard thing and trust that God would meet me in that loneliness. I don't know what I should do with my business. You know, well, what would you do if you knew that God would be with you? The hard thing, the ethical thing, the, the right thing. Well, I don't know what to do with like, this marriage situation. You know, well, what would you do if you knew that God would be with you? The hard thing, confess, come clean, confront, lead, submit. 
and trust that God meets me in where he's called me to? See, maybe this is just way too simple. It's just this, this question has proved far too powerful for, for me personally. Because from here, this kid walking into Egypt, he doesn't, again, he doesn't speak the tongue, he doesn't know the culture, doesn't understand the economy, he has no contacts. This kid will do the hard thing day in and day out. He will work hard, he will resist temptation, he will lead out, he will bust it, because somehow he is very aware, God's right with me. And since God's coming with me, I know exactly what to do. Obedience will bring difficulty. You're going to be hated. You know this. You're seeing this. But are you also seeing God draw near? Because that changes everything. The last few days, I was up in, up in Wisconsin. Um, my, my grandma had passed away a couple weeks ago now. And we, we buried her on, on Thursday. I had a funeral on Wednesday for her. And it was in the church that I grew up in. It was, you know, it, it, it's still a funeral, but it's still enjoyable to, like, go back and see the town, you know, you grew up in and see all these old, like, people I haven't seen in, like, 20 years, you know. It's, it's fun, to, fun to see them all. Um, but I remember sitting in the, in, really in the, the church before the funeral and just thinking back, you know, to memories that I had with grandma in that church. But then also I, I remember riding my bike to that church so many times. Growing up, I loved, I loved my bike. I had this orange Huffy bike and uh, it was the 90s, you know, a little town in Wisconsin. And so kids just roamed around on, on bikes. It's like the good old days. And there were days where I would leave home, you know, in the morning. I wouldn't return until like dinner time. You know, I'd ride to the local gas station. And I'd pick up those like, remember those blue, like raspberry little Tootsie Roll things? I'd pick up like, a, they, were, they sold them for a cent. And so I'd pick up like 10 of them with like a dime. And then I'd ride through the park. I'd visit my dad at his office. And then there was an old people's home in the middle of town where my great grandma lived. And so I'd like swing by and stop by and visit her there. It was, it was the best. I loved riding my bike. Until one day, I was riding through the part of town that was just a little bit more run down. And I was riding and out of nowhere, a rock just comes and hits my bike. So I like, stop. Like, what was that? And then another rock, and then another rock. And I looked to my right, and four older boys were throwing rocks at me. I didn't know them. Like, for a second, I just, like, froze. You know, they were older, they were bigger, and they had rocks, and they were coming closer. And so I whipped my bike around, and I pedaled home like mad, all the way home, parked my bike in the garage, didn't touch it for days. At one point, my dad confronted me about it. He's like, Gene, you ride your bike all the time. Uh, get out there and ride. I was like, no, no. He's like, why? Well, I told him the story. And he said, well, you need to get back on your bike. You can't let a bunch of bullies keep you from enjoying one of your adventures from, of life. I'm like, no, Dad, I can. I plan to do that. He's like, no, you need to get back on your bike. Like, face your fear. So I argued with him, but, you know, he's Dad, so Dad's going to win. I had to obey. I remember standing in the garage and staring at my bike, not wanting to get on. You know, my dad came to the garage, and I said, do I, do I have to? He's like, yeah. Like, do I have to ride past the house that was throwing rocks at me? My dad's like, yeah. Like, my stomach sags. He got me kidding me. Why is he making me do this? Until my dad showed me his keys. And he said, but I'm going to be in the car behind you. And if they come out again, I'm going to be right there. Like, oh, well, that changed everything. Now I rode down the block with confidence. Because I'm not going alone. Dad's new. Dad's with. There might be somewhere in your life where you're staring at your bike. And it's not a bike, it's, it's a complicated marriage. It's 
It's a messy family situation. It's an unhealthy relationship. It's family drama. It's a work issue. And the last thing you want to do is what you need to do. The right thing. The hard thing. Because you know it's going to hurt. And it probably will. But are you struggling with something that God has asked you to do because you don't believe he's coming with you? Like This is where trust comes in. Trust isn't this feeling you feel in a worship song. Well, that's great. It is good. Trust is when you go, I'm going to do the right thing, the hard thing, the unpopular thing. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to trust that God's going to meet me right there and God's coming with. Don't forget, you have a heavenly Father who draws near. Yes, he's called you to difficulty, but he's coming with you. And knowing that, I think you know exactly what to do. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.